Dear Heavenly Father, it is a fearful responsibility to speak about the character of God. And I pray that your grace would rest upon me and I could speak about you in a way that is only true. And that as we come to know you better, we would experience the elevation of soul, the restoration of true humanity, the uh, making magnificent of uh, our personhood. And we might be the people you truly created us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Last week I spoke to you about um, um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. It's his um, analogy or allegory about heaven and hell. I'd like to tell you another story from that book this week. Uh, Lewis, uh, the narrator said that uh, he was standing in a beautiful, uh, in a beautiful lawn um, uh, uh, in front of heaven. Gorgeous lawn. Beautiful trees, it, everything's manicured. And he heard music, and he looked in the direction that music was coming, the music was coming from, and he saw um, children in like a parade dancing. And there were birds flying around them and squirrels were running beside them and, and, and deer were leaping into the parade. And uh, in the middle of the parade was the most gorgeous woman that uh, uh, the narrator had ever seen. Uh, she was so gorgeous that um, he couldn't take his eye off her. And the parade came right around in front of him, and um, the narrator noticed that the lady was looking in a direction, and the direction he, she was looking in, he looked, and he saw a very short, ugly man holding a chain that went up to the collar that was around a actor's neck that was dressed in very odd clothes. So you have this absolutely beautiful lady and this um, inexplicably odd little man with a actor. And what made it even more incongruous was the lady walked up to the little man and greeted him very kindly. In fact, she said, Frank, I'm sorry or any time I hurt your feelings. 
I'm sorry for anything I ever did that broke your heart. And I'm so happy to see you. When I was reading it, I, I, I expected him to say, thank you. And, but he didn't say anything. He just jerked the chain. And the actor said, did you miss us? And the beautiful lady said, well, it's really not like that here in heaven. You see, in heaven, uh, God is so good to us that we are content and we don't really miss anything because the goodness of God satisfies all our heart longings. That is not what the little man wanted to hear. And so he jerked the chain again, and the actor said, so you didn't miss us. And the lady said, uh, Frank, please don't do this. I've come a long way to meet you, and I want to take you just over the hill. There's a beautiful fountain. You'll love to see it. It'll give you peace just to see it. And if you drink from the water of that fountain, you'll, stop. you'll be less of a ghost and more of a real man. And, and, and things will feel differently to you. And, and you'll, find that, you'll, you'll find that different things are important. Just come with me and, and have a drink from the fountain. And the actor and the little man said at once, uh, I know when I'm not wanted. Why should I go anywhere with you when I'm not wanted? And the beautiful lady, once again, she pleaded with him and said, um, Frank, I'm here because I, I love you. And I'm here because God sent me to help you get to the fountain. Please don't do this. And it looked for a moment, it looked for just a moment, like the little man was going to give in. The beautiful lady said, just let go of that chain. You don't need that actor. Just let go of that and come with me. And it looked for a moment like she was going to. But then something hardened in him, and he became very angry, and he started yelling at her about uh, never caring, and that uh, he, she never understood him, and that she was too influenced by her silly religion. And as he yelled these things, he continued to shrink and shrink. And pretty soon he's so small that holding onto the chain, his feet are off the ground. 
And all the time he's yelling, the beautiful woman is pleading, Frank, please, you don't have to do this. There's something so much better. And eventually, Frank shrunk so small he couldn't be seen. And the actor continued to yell at the lady until he stopped, swallowed the chain, and disappeared. Well, that C.S. Lewis had an imagination, didn't he? <laughs> I tell you, I recommend some good books here. And not long after that, the lady uh, began singing, and all the children began singing, and they all, the whole parade, seemed to skip and dance back toward uh, the mountains of heaven. Lewis is telling an allegory. He's, he's using imagery. And he said, if we're not careful, because we remember the first part of the book, we all have the code of decent behavior in our hearts. And we all know that we're not living up to it. And if we're not careful, instead of having a change of character, we create facades. And we're content to have people think we are a certain way when we're really not. And Lewis is saying, the more you work on your facade, the more you lose your authentic self. Until in the end, all that is left is the person you're pretending to be and nothing left of the real you. And when that happens, not even the actor can survive. On the other hand, the beautiful woman represented what God is able to do with the human soul. There's some innate seed in you, something of the image of God that the Trinity is able to work on and turn it from what's broken and it's not supposed to be into something that is so beautiful people can't take their eye away. You get this? It is God's passion not just to fix you where you aren't comfortable with yourself. He wants to go way beyond that, and he wants to make you beautiful beyond what you imagine. He wants your soul to be a glowing, beautiful, majestic reflection of his beauty and his own creative genius. He is passionately committed to making you everything he created you with the potential to be. And in mere Christianity, Lewis says, it takes the whole Trinity to do that. It requires the whole Trinity of God to make us beautiful souls. So let's start by saying, what do we actually mean by the word Trinity? 
Trinity was, the word Trinity was created about 180 years after Christ, and they took two words and made them one. They took tri-unity and combined it into Trinity. And Trinity is a word that defines the nature and the existence of God. Church, uh, I'm unapologetic about asking you to think with me in uh, richer ways. And so today I'm going to share uh, um, uh, 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 quotations from um, uh, some of the greatest theologians who ever lived. All right, and I'm going to ask you to think with me. It's really only a half hour of concentrating, and you can take a nap when we're done. All right. I'm asking you to think with me. All right. Charles Hodge, who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary for about 50 years, is probably the greatest uh, American theologian who lived. And this is what he wrote about the Trinity. The divine being, God, exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But... This is only one divine being. There is one divine being who exists in three persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit are equally divine. The Father is not more divine than the Son. The Son is not more divine than the Spirit. They are equally divine. The Father, Son, and Spirit are one essence. And we're going to talk about what does essence mean. The Father, Son, and Spirit possess the same attributes, are equal in power and glory. So, Trinity means that there is one being who we call God. He has one essence, and from that one essence are three persons. All right. If that sounds unusual to you, it should because there is no one or nothing like God. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 6, and this is what he said, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Why is it hard to think about God? because he is the only one. I, I, I don't have to know you personally to know many of the things about you because humanity shares a lot of stuff in common. You see? I can know a whole lot about you just because I know you're a human being. And, and uh, now, to know you personally, I have to know more than the human traits. I have to know your specific human traits. The trouble with God is there is no one else beside him. There is one God, and no one else is even remotely like him. And on top of that, he's incomprehensible. Hodge said, to expect that we who cannot understand anything, not even ourselves, should understand the mysteries of the Godhead is in the last degree, unreasonable. All right. Do you, do you find that you, don't, you often don't even understand yourself? 
Let me give you an example. Has, an, has, has, has a thought ever popped into your head and you said to yourself, where the heck did that come from? Right? We, 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 we don't even understand ourselves. How in the world are we, how in the world are we ever going to really comprehend an infinite God? See, here's the problem. God is infinite and we're finite. I have a limited capacity, and God is an unlimited being. My limited capacity for knowledge is not able to hold his infinite capacity for knowledge. Do you remember when I preached on what does God know? I said, God doesn't just know what happens, he knows all the possibilities. Now think about your life yesterday. How many choices did you make in just yesterday? And a lot of these choices we made almost subconsciously, right? Sometimes my car just gets home. I don't know how it got there, I'm just home. <laughs> all right. In every one of those choices, God knew every possibility if I had made another choice. And he didn't know that for just one day of my life. He knows that for every single day of my life. And he doesn't just know it for every single day of my life. He knows it for every single day of every single person who ever has lived or ever will live. You see? Now we're trying to touch the edge of what is infinite knowledge. And it's hard to even think about. Not only is God incomprehensible, he's incomparable. I can't compare him to anything. Since God is absolutely unique in his existence, God is the only one who is infinite. He's the only one who's eternal. He's the only one who's immutable. He's the only one who's immense. He's the only one who's all-powerful. He's the only one who's all-knowing. He's the only one who's everywhere present, and he is the only one who is pure perfection. I can't compare him to anything, but it hasn't kept the human race from trying. All right, I'm going to tell you right now, I do not compare God to anything. It is an insult to dumb God down. Do you see? God is not a cartoon figure that children watch to be religiously entertained. He is the Lord God Almighty. And if I have to struggle to understand him, I need to struggle to understand don't ever accept a dumbed-down representation of God. I'll give you an example. I have read uh, God is like a triangle. Three equal sides. All right. Church, that is demeaning to God. You will never understand God by thinking about a triangle. Can you hear this? You will never understand God by thinking about a triangle. Um, in fact, there was a time in the world 
if you called someone a square, they took that as an insult. Anybody remember? Uh, all right, please listen. The Trinity requires us to stretch our minds, to think better, to grow intellectually. You see, part of God making you the beautiful soul that he wants you to be includes God stretching your mind and making you think in ways better than you've thought in the past. And if I have to stretch my thinking, if I have to learn something new, if I have to meditate, if I have to pray to understand the Trinity better, then it's worth every bit of it. Never insult God by thinking him to be less than he really is. Isaiah the prophet also wrote in the name of the Lord, remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. Please listen to this. There is none like me. God said, you'll never understand me by trying to compare me to other things. This is another proof, church, as I've told you many times, Christianity is a thinking religion. Church? Hodge said, when we start thinking about who God is, when a doctrine so complex as the Trinity is presented as an object of faith, the mind is forced. If you really want to think about God, the mind is forced to reflect. The, the mind is forced to think in its very best way, to endeavor to ascertain what is, it includes and how its several parts are uh, to be stated so as to avoid confusion and uh, um, contradiction. Um, to think about God is the hardest thinking you'll ever do, but the most profitable. Church, it is the hardest thinking you'll ever do, but it's the most profitable thinking you'll ever do. Although God is incomprehensible, and although he's um, incomparable, he can be thought about and he can be talked about. 325 years after Christ, um, a church council was held in uh, Nicaea. It's a city in northern Greece. Um, and at that council, pastors, theologians, church officials from all over Christianity came together, and they came together for the single purpose of talking about God as a trinity. The, some heresies had started to slip into the church, and the Nicene council came together to say, we're going to create a statement that says, this is the official way that the church thinks about God. And we got the Nicene Creed, which is basically a statement of God as uh, 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 the Trinity. Luther, God bless him, uh, uh, was good at making hard things easy for common people like us. Listen to what Luther said, how to think about the Trinity. We should, like little children, stammer out what the scriptures teach. 
that Christ is truly God, that the Holy Spirit is truly God, and yet that there are not three gods or three beings. No, God is not thus divided in his essence, but there is one only divine being. Listen to what Luther says. Luther says you start best by starting simple. There is one God in one essence, and he, he, he reveals himself as Father who is truly God, Son who is truly God, Spirit who is truly God, although the three are one. That's where we start thinking. So the problem is, we have to come to terms with this essence and persons. If God is one essence and three persons, what do we mean by essence? All right, let's start there. Essence means your essential being. What makes you, you? Your, your human nature. All right, so God has a divine nature. He has a divine essence. All right. The human nature, the human na essence, uh, we recognize in each other. Um, it's not really hard to distinguish the human essence from a dog. I have um, the smartest and prettiest dog in the known world. Um, uh, um, I get... Uh, um, um, recognition because my dog likes me, not because. <laughs> Look, I love that dog. But there's a big difference between the dog's nature and my nature. Yeah, we like to share cheese together. Uh, uh, she thinks she fits in my chair when I'm in there. All right. It's distinguishable. Um, uh, dogs have gone a long way to adapt themselves to us, but their nature is still different than ours, right? I don't eat out of a bowl on the floor, although I do believe in the three-second rule. All right. God's essence, God's nature, is distinguishable from everything else because he is divine. His nature is divine. Now this is where it gets hard, persons. The, our English word persons starts with the Greek word prosopon, that means face. So you can tell, a, you, we have an innate code within us that we recognize faces. Many of you know a lot of faces that you don't know how to put names with, right? Your mind remembers the face, but not the name. All right, so prosopon in Greek meant face, but it meant really the person that the face represented. All right, then it got moved into Latin to persona. And we've all heard the word persona. That is uh, what represents who we are. And then it gets into English as personhood. So, God has one essence and three personhoods. And immediately, 
your mind thinks, how is that possible? We automatically think, how can you have three in one, one in three? Uh, John Owen, uh, the great English the uh, theologian said, it may be true that one essence in normal things can mean only one person. But when the essence is infinite, it creates infinite possibilities. There is a huge difference between the essence of God and the essence of humanity. The essence of humanity is finite and has all the limitations. The essence of God is infinite and isn't restricted by the same limitations we have. Every Sunday here, we do a blessing and we say, may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Do you see the persons of the Trinity there? Do you see that there's something about the person of the Father that is the source of love in our lives? There's something about the person of Jesus Christ that is the source of grace in our lives. There's something about the person of the Holy Spirit that is the source of association with God in our lives. So how about if we say this? The person of the Father is the origin of all the love that we know. Listen, herein is love not that we loved God, but that he loved us. In the second person of the Trinity, we are introduced to the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. The way God shows us that he wants to treat us better than what we deserve is through, through Christ, you see? And the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that we feel in our souls when we feel God. Um, I, I, I've had people say to me I, I, about, um, about a rise, I had people say to me, you could just feel God. You were feeling the Holy Spirit. Do you see? One essence, three persons, and we experience God uniquely through these persons. And why is this important? Because the Trinity is necessary for the restoration of the human soul. We're broken. Remember, mere Christianity says in the very first section, we have a code of decent behavior and we all know we don't live up to it. How is salvation a matter of the Trinity? Well, we know that God is the source of love. All right, how about this? Paul says in Ephesians, the very first chapter, that God elected you before the foundation of the earth. Now, I know some of you don't like the word election. I'm not going to argue with you about that. I'm just quoting the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul clearly says that in the love of God, we were elect before the foundation of the world. We can talk about what that all means later, but I'm not giving an inch that I am saved today because the Father's electing love. You did not choose me, I chose you. 
I give God all the credit for my salvation. I give God all the glory for my salvation. I, I know that by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Brothers and sisters, if you see the majesty of the face of God in his heaven, it will be because of the electing love of the Father. And then there is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the grace of Christ that I am redeemed. Listen, he who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. That's grace. Christ took everything that was broken and ugly about me and he took it on himself and he graciously gave back. He gratuitously gave back to me all that is beautiful and good and right about him. Church. And then the friendship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the nature of, is the person of God who is at work in me every day asking me to be a better man. Every day the Holy Spirit shows up in my life and says, would you please be a better man? Would you please be a better man? Let me help you. We got to work on this attitude, Hoss. Not healthy. Church, the nature, in the nature of God, it is the Holy Spirit who does this work that day by day conforms me to the image of Christ and is making me into the beautiful soul that C.S. Lewis imagined. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth. C.S. Lewis did not write mere Christianity to just to tell us what Christianity means. He wrote it to ask you, do you want to be a Christian? The whole book is to prompt the question, do you want to be a Christian? Do you want God to use that internal code of decent behavior as a beginning place where his spirit begins to change you? Do you want Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Do you want the, the virtues that he talked about to be growing qualities of your soul? And do you want to trust the Holy Trinity with everything and permit them to make you the person God wants you to be? That's what it means to be a Christian, church. Being a Christian doesn't mean how many times you come to church on, on, uh, 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 in any given year. It doesn't mean the rituals of the church. It doesn't mean any of those things. Those things are only valuable because something of the Trinity has touched our finite souls. Those things are only meaningful because the Father's love has been convincing to us, because the grace of Lord Jesus Christ calls to us, because the friendship of the Holy Spirit says, we can do this together. And because we see the promise that there is life in Christ Jesus, and it is eternal life, that's what calls us to be Christians church.
I believe today some of you need to make the hardest decision you're ever going to make in your life. And that decision is, do I want to be a Christian? And am I willing to let God do the work in me that's necessary to make me a Christian? Our dear Heavenly Father, there is no one like you. There is no one like you. There is no name like your name. My heart is always... Um, my heart is always uh, elevated when I think about you as you really are. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm saying specific prayers this morning. There are some here who have not felt the saving love of the Trinity. They've wandered around in Christianity They've wandered around in life, but they've never had that moment where the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the friendship of the Holy Spirit changed them. I'm praying for those this morning that today might be the day that they, they, they call upon the name of the Lord. I'm praying for my Christian brothers and sisters who know you but they've lost their sense of admiration. They've lost their sense of awe. You have become commonplace to them. They've categorized you in some way in their life. And your majesty is no longer compelling to them. I pray, Heavenly Father, today that the thinking of the, of the Holy Trinity would wash over them in a fresh way, and they would find their hearts drawn to you. They would find themselves as the prodigal son running home to the Father. Then, Father, I pray for those who um, evaded your spirit. They're here but somehow or another, their heart wasn't open. Oh, how I pray that in your great love and by your great grace and by the Holy Spirit's matchless presence, a door of their soul would be open and they would be willing to reconsider Jesus Christ. And I pray this all in Christ's name, amen.